Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the unsolved January 2012 murder of 32-year-old Itasema Chavez. Itasema, called Rosa by friends, was born in Monterey, Mexico, the second youngest of six children. Her sister, Diana, would be the first to come to the United States. Diana had a good job working at a bank in Mexico, but her friends had been encouraging her to move to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She came here once on vacation, liked what she saw, and decided to move to Texas in 1998. Some years later, Itasema came to visit her sister and her sister's new husband, Mohamed Eluad. Like her sister, she liked what she saw. She decided to stay, initially living with Diana and Mohammed. Diana even got her a job working at a fast food restaurant alongside her. Things were fine, but it didn't take too long before Diana and Mohammed started seeing a bit of change in Edesema. Changes that are to be expected for a single woman getting her first real taste of independence. She was young and beautiful and wanted to live it up. I mean, a lot of times I grabbed her and talked to her, you know, I said, you know what, this is a different life in here, it's not Mexico. You have to be careful. Everybody, I mean, don't trust anybody. Not, don't make a lot of friends. But despite her brother-in-law's warnings, Itasema made tons of friends. She loved to go out dancing and drinking with her friends. One of her close friends was Daniel Gutier, who had met Itasema in 2003. The two quickly became part of a crowd of about 15 who routinely hung out together, mostly in Dallas nightclubs. And we were all really good friends. We would go out to the club and dance, and we would have parties, and it was always uh, the same people, the same group. Uh, so she was part of us, and she was just the life of the party. Daniel says Erasema, whom he called by her nickname Rosa, often attracted the attention of both women and men. Petite and pretty, she'd even helped Daniel, a professional photographer, by modeling for him so he could get some outdoor shooting experience before opening his own photography studio. When they'd go out clubbing, Daniel says Erasema liked to dress sexy and could dance anything from cumbias to merengue. She was a pretty good dancer, so uh, because of that, you know, she was very attractive. A lot of people wanted to dance with her because she would make them look good. She was a really good dancer. So Diana and Mohammed say it was to her friends that Erasema would most often confide about her life. They say she told them little, unless it was very serious and she needed their help. In fact, it was Mohammed who would be the first family member that Erasema would confide to that she didn't just like men, that in fact she preferred women. She goes, you know what, I'm going to tell you something very serious with my life. I said, go ahead, see if I can help you out. She goes, you know what, my sister, she goes, my family, nobody knows. She goes, you know, I'm, I'm a lesbian. I said, read it. I mean, what the heck? I mean, that's your life. Just be careful. Be careful because it's a, you know, I, I heard a lot about lesbians. I mean, they're very jealous more than the men. You know, so just be careful what you do. When Muhammad told his wife weeks later, she was not surprised. Diana had said Erasema didn't tell her because she didn't think her sister would approve. She suspects that's why her sister eventually moved out of their home and on her own, eager for freedom. By January 2012, Itasema was living in the Aspenwood Apartments, located off Collins Street in East Arlington. That month, Itasema and Diana's 17-year-old niece 
Linda Isenia Valdez Chavez, known as Yessi, had come to visit from Mexico. She was kind of splitting her time between her Aunt Diana and Aunt Irisema, and had even spent the night at Irisema's on January 18th, two days before Irisema was found dead. On the night of the 19th, Yessi was spending the night with her Aunt Diana. Mohammed was away in Mexico undergoing surgery. Irisema had called Diana that night. Police say it was around 9.30 p.m., trying to talk her sister and niece into coming over to her apartment and staying the night. Diana told Irisema no, that she was afraid to drive that late at night. She suggested Irisema come to her place instead for the night, but her sister said no. Diana said her sister had never indicated that she was scared. She didn't say anything to lead Diana to think her little sister was in danger. If she told me something serious about somebody go killing her or making a trouble, I'll be there. Sadly, that phone call would be the last time the two sisters talked. Later that same night, Diana and Yessi said they tried to get a hold of Irisema again, but she didn't answer the phone. They figured she was not picking up because she was probably mad that they hadn't come over. That next morning, on January 20th, Diana had to go to work. So she took Yessi to Irisema's apartment so the two could spend the day together. Diana waited in her car as her niece climbed the stairs to Irisema's apartment, wanting to make sure she got in safely. Yessi remembers feeling bad that Irisema was ignoring their phone calls and messages, apparently mad that they hadn't come over the night before. She planned on asking Irisema to forgive her and Diana. She had a key and had previously learned the special trick it took in unlocking the sometimes difficult door. But that morning, there was no need. The door she found was already unlocked. She pushed it open and immediately knew something was wrong. I saw everything was stained, soaked with blood. I wanted to see what had happened because I saw a lot of blood. Even the white walls were covered. And then I saw her face down. I had no idea what happened. All I could do was run, ask for help, and scream. Diana was already pulling out, but heard her niece's frantic screams, parked the car, and ran to the apartment. I told her something happened to Irasema because she was face down on the floor. I didn't know what happened and there was blood everywhere. As her niece waited outside, Diana went into the apartment, saw her sister's body, and began screaming. She ran outside, careful not to touch anything. Neighbors emerged from their apartment and called police. Mohammed had just gotten out of surgery that morning. He was being driven back to his in-laws' home to recuperate when his distraught wife called him with the news that Irisema had been murdered. That day, my mother-in-law, she was with me, my sister-in-law, my two sister-in-law, they were with me. How am I going to tell them this? How am I going to explain to them? Tell my, uh, my brother-in-law, he was driving, I said, you know, can you stop the car for a little bit, please? He stopped the car, I got out, smelled some air, then I went back and I said, you know what? Diana, she just called. So, uh, everything is good? I said, look, it's not good. And I said, she died. Mohammed and some of his in-laws would rush from Mexico to Texas. Diana struggled then and still grapples with what might have happened had she and her niece gone to her sister's apartment that night. Maybe Irisema would still be alive. But her husband believes God protected his wife and niece by keeping them away that night. Just imagine if you guys, three of you over there, that night, and it's not gonna be just one. All of you three, they'd be gone. So when Arlington's homicide detective, Caleb Blank, arrived at the apartment, he was met by a gruesome crime scene. 
Edisema's body was face down on the floor in an area of the apartment that joins the kitchen and dining room. The medical examiner would later note well over 100 stab wounds all over her body, some occurring after she was already dead. Her shirt was black. And remember in the 1980s, like the, the like uh, netting shirts? That's what it looked like. It had that many stab wounds through it. One of Edisema's feet was propped up on the bottom rung of an overturned bar chair. Two other dining room chairs were also on their sides. The attack had evidently been swift. Police started canvassing the surrounding apartments, trying to see if anyone saw or heard anything suspicious. The downstairs neighbors remembered hearing a thump sometime in the night, but they didn't really think much of it. They just thought like a, a, a uh, bar stool type thing had fallen over or a, a chair had tumped over. So they didn't think anything of it. They didn't hear a large um, disturbance, fight, anything along those lines. They just heard what sounded like a thump. Now, Erasama's flat screen television was missing from the entertainment console, but it appeared to be the only thing missing from the apartment. And while the TV was gone, what her killer left behind would give police insight into the fact that they were likely not dealing with a burglar or robber. Investigators had noticed before entering Erasema's apartment that day that she had surveillance cameras installed outside the apartment. Now today, that's pretty common. People have cameras pointing at the front door, looking to see who's visiting or who might be stealing packages off their porch. But this was six years ago, when it was a little more complicated to install a security camera, and not many people had them at their homes. Itasema had taken that unusual step so she could watch over her pickup, a gray Dodge Ram. Apparently, uh, Irasema uh, really loved her pickup truck. She babied it, she polished it, and kept it very clean. Um, at some point, uh, several months prior to uh, her, her death, uh, somebody tried to break into it, so, to kind of further protect her, her vehicle, she set up surveillance cameras on the outside of her apartment facing the parking lot and her front door. So in all, there were three cameras. Two focused on the parking lot, one focused on the stairwell that led to Eresema's front door. And if nothing good was on TV, Blank says it was common knowledge to Eresema's friends and family that she would play the surveillance video on her TV so she could keep an eye on her pickup while in the kitchen or even her bedroom. So with this flat screen TV now missing, obviously investigators are wondering if Edisema's killer was trying to get rid of any possible surveillance video. It looked like they took the time to actually disconnect the, the wires from the TV and then they stole the TV. Uh, this initially we thought was odd because there was other electronics that was in the same uh, entertainment center that was left, including I believe a DVD player, I think an Xbox was still there and the DVR system to the surveillance system was all there. Um, so I don't know if the person was just thought, hey, here's a TV I can take, or if they were trying to steal the DVR system and just took the TV instead. Whatever the case, by leaving the DVR behind, they left police a valuable clue. Blank replugged the DVR to see if it still worked. It powered on. He then contacted Detective Ted Eby with the department's economic crimes unit who came out to the scene with a small monitor. Plugged in and realized it worked. Just because it worked didn't mean we had the passcode. <laughs> so no one knew her passcode. So Detective Eby carefully powers down the machine and takes the DVR to the lab where he figures out a way to override the code. He calls Blank back to the lab, they download the video and boom, Blank gets his first glimpse of Erasema's likely killer. And that's when we saw the suspect walk up the stairs and, and 
knock on the door. So in this part of my interview with Blank, I'm giddy. I mean, I'm thinking, how lucky is it that although the TV was stolen, this DVR was left behind that ends up showing our likely bad guy actually walking up to the door? Blank, however, does not share my enthusiasm. He describes the video to me and later even shows it to me, and it's certainly not going to break the case wide open. You can watch the video for yourself at our podcast webpage, www.star-telegram.com backslash out of the cold. First of all, it's grainy, not really clear at all. And it doesn't appear to be equipped with any special kind of night vision or anything like that. The suspect is wearing a hoodie that is pulled over a baseball cap. You can see the suspect from the back as they climb the stairs to Edesema's second floor apartment, then from the side as they knock on her door. But the suspect never actually looks at the camera, so you don't ever see their face. What you see is the suspect stands outside Edesema's door for quite a while after knocking, like a little more than a minute. And at one point, it looks like the suspect maybe is even talking to Edesema through the door. Maybe she's asking, who is it? I mean, obviously a woman who has cameras outside her home isn't going to just open up her door late at night to anyone. But she does eventually open the door. And you can see the suspect slowly walk into the apartment. Not rush in, not force his way in, just walk in. So at the very least, the video confirms for Detective Blank that this is not some sort of burglary gone bad and that he appears to be dealing with a single suspect. Yeah, it definitely helped put some relief in my mind that, hey, we're looking for, uh, Arisama was targeted for a specific reason and whoever this is, is known to her. So again, it helps take out the randomness of the the offense. But no, I wasn't all high-fiving just yet. <laughs> Still gotta solve it. So the timestamp on the video shows the killer arriving at 11.29 p.m., then being led into the apartment a minute later. In actuality, Blank says there's a 53-minute discrepancy between the timestamp and the actual time. So it was really 10.37 p.m. on January 19th when the killer was let in. Some 10 minutes later, the DVR's power is disconnected. So it, it seems like it was a pretty pretty quick attack because the, 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 DV, the DVR works perfectly for months prior to, and then it immediately shuts off at that point. So it's probable that the suspect disconnected Whenever they were disconnecting things, it got turned off at that point. So the walk of the suspect appears somewhat masculine in the video. Investigators thought so, and I certainly thought the same thing watching it. But another piece of evidence left behind at the scene would later reveal to investigators that they weren't looking for a male killer. They were looking for a woman. Here's how they figured that out. You see, though it appeared Itasema was likely attacked right around where she was found in the apartment, There was blood found elsewhere, on the walls and floors, likely spread as the killer walked around the apartment after killing Itasema. Not far from inside the front door, police found a bloody shoe print that didn't match that of Itasema's sister or her niece. That print told them the killer wore a very distinctive type of athletic shoe. Blank is not disclosing what kind of shoe it was for investigative reasons, but he said it was around a woman's size nine. As they searched the rest of the apartment, Another bloody trail led to Edesema's bedroom. Now, family members had told investigators that Edesema had another smaller TV in her bedroom on a nightstand, one on which she could also watch her surveillance camera footage. Perhaps the killer had taken that TV too. But when they entered, the smaller TV was still there. However, on the nightstand, 
something else caught the eye of investigators. And that's when we saw that one just pure, beautiful uh, blood droplet that was there. It was about the same uh, drying consistency as the other blood located, so it appeared like it wasn't significantly old. It wasn't something that was um, been there for weeks or what have you. It wasn't dried and flaky. It was still wet when we got there. So that made me believe that it was probably placed in our crime scene at the same time of the assault of Irisema. So homicide investigators will tell you that in stabbing cases, especially when a victim has been stabbed multiple times, there's a good chance that the suspect ends up accidentally cutting themselves as well. Knife handles can get slippery, they can loosen from one's grasp. So when Blank sees this blood drop in an odd place, he's immediately hopeful that it might not belong to Irisema, but maybe her killer. Testing would confirm his suspicions were right. So the investigation would send investigators down several paths. Among the most obvious place to start was Edisema's love life. My initial inclination was that this was some sort of uh, romantic fallout, and that led to whoever did this to Edisema to ultimately come over to her apartment that night. As it turns out, Edisema had been dating a woman named Karina. Diana says she believes the two had been involved for like six months. Diana said she'd met Karina a time or two, but didn't think much of her. First of all, Diana says Karina seemed very controlling and jealous, not a good match for her sister, who was very independent and a free spirit. Yessi also was concerned about her aunt's relationship with Karina. She had met Karina a few times before on earlier visits to the U.S. and had hung out with Karina and Edesema on January 19th, one day before finding her aunt Irisema dead. She remembers a strange conversation the three had had that had left her uneasy. Irisema, she said, had been making the three lunch and they'd been watching TV and chatting. She said she and Karina had gone into the bedroom so she could show Karina the computer her aunt had just bought her. She remembers asking Karina her thoughts on crime in Monterey and what she thought about Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the cartel drug lord who shared Karina's last name and at the time was being sought by Mexican authorities after escaping from a top security prison in 2001. She said Karina told her that she'd had her own dangerous encounters and as a result, tried to always keep bodyguards around her. She even showed Yessi two scars on her stomach that she said were from bullet wounds. Called to lunch, Yessi said the conversation about El Chapo continued. I asked her, would you be able to kill someone? because he had killed so many people. And she said, I couldn't do it, but I have people who can. Yes, he said Karina then admitted to her that El Chapo is her uncle, and that while she didn't know where he was hiding, they were in contact. I was really scared because first I see her bullet wounds, then it turns out she's the niece of this criminal, and then she says if someone messes with her, she could have them killed. I told Yurasema that I was really scared and I wanted Karina to leave. Then she told me she couldn't kick her out because they were already mad at each other, and she's only going to get more angry. I wasn't comfortable. I wanted my Aunt Diana to get off of work so I could go with her because I didn't feel comfortable with Karina. Diana says during a previous visit with Irasema and Karina, Irasema had also told her that Karina was El Chapo's niece. So I did some research into Karina's background. And there's a Mexican media website that actually does a family tree on El Chapo that shows his siblings. I couldn't find any link between her parents and El Chapo. 
What's further interesting is that several of Erasema's friends had also told Detective Blank that Karina was selling cocaine for her family at Dallas nightclubs, and that maybe Erasema had been helping or simply choosing to overlook her new girlfriend's drug dealing. Blank said he dug some into Karina's family to check out the friend's drug-selling allegation. And while he saw some questionable social media posts, like pictures with gold-plated pistols, he didn't find anything to confirm Karina's involvement with drug sales. I was never able to substantiate that or definitively say one way or the other. Uh, Karina told me, no, she doesn't do that sort of thing. He also didn't find or see anything to suggest she was linked to El Chapo. He would find out that on the night that Erasema was murdered, she had just broken up with Karina. In fact, the detective says Erasema had been on Facebook that night lamenting about the end of the relationship. Just opining about her breakup with Karina and her heartbreak, and she was posting sad music on there, and some of her friends were even commenting to her, what's going on, why, just, you know, everything will be fine, snap out of it, that sort of thing. I mean, the timing is certainly suspicious. And the obvious question is, could Karina, upset that Erasema had broken up with her, have killed her? That many stab wounds certainly suggest that the killer was enraged. But Karina voluntarily gave investigators a DNA sample. Police also took blood from maintenance workers at the complex, who had recently been working on the air conditioning in Erasema's apartment, just to make sure none of them accidentally cut themselves and left the blood droplet there. Eventually, we got the results back, and it was none of them. So that it was not Karina's blood does not take away the suspicions of some of Erasema's family and friends that she could have still been involved, Yessi included. I told the police, and I still believe that it was Karina who sent someone because of all the things that she said before Erasema died and because I don't know if they had broken up or how bad their fight was the day before. So also muddying the waters is that at the time of her death, Erasema had been working for an older married gentleman named George, doing odd jobs around his house like painting. Um, But he also would go to gun shows and sell guns. That was kind of one of the ways he made his living, too. And she would go with him to the gun and knife shows and help him sell guns and knives. And it was clear from her text messaging and everything that some people were asking her to buy specific guns or try and get George, who didn't know anything about this, uh, to get types of guns from George, so it was kind of like a backdoor channel, if you will. So could it have been drugs, or maybe backdoor gun sales, that put Erasema in harm's way? I don't necessarily think that the narcotics angle was what got Erasema killed, and I don't think the the guns sales was what got her killed. Um, But, you know, it's just something that it was, again, complicates things, if you will. It's not something that's just direct. This is clearly a motive that caused her death. Um, But it's definitely something that could have played a part in it. So Erasema's family would have two funerals for her, one in Arlington for her American friends, and then the other in Mexico where she would be buried. Only Mohammed would glimpse at his sister-in-law's body and the wounds that covered it before she was dressed for the funeral. He later shielded his wife from the autopsy report that detailed each of the stab wounds. But Diana says she knows her sister suffered greatly. I can't believe how she died. I can't believe how she died. At the funeral in Arlington, the couple would see firsthand how many friends Erasema had made. People came from San Antonio, Houston, Arkansas, Oklahoma to pay their respects. Even Daniel Gutierrez, who earlier described Erasema as the life of the party, was amazed. I knew there was going to be a lot of people, but when I got there, it was uh, almost uh, 
overwhelming to see what's to what's packed. You can barely walk inside the, the funeral home. And there was just people coming in and out, like constantly. Among the visitors that day, much to the dismay of those who harbored suspicions that she was responsible, was Karina and a friend she'd brought with her. The tension was thick. The talk among Itasema's friends is that it had to have been Karina. And nobody wanted her to go inside in the funeral. And to me, I was over there that day and I said that time of you know what? I don't care what people said. She was her girlfriend, she wanna go see her. I'm gonna take her inside. I took her myself inside. She saw her, she cried with her, wherever, and I tell you, done. Because everybody was very mad at her. So I was like a bodyguard to her that day. So while the blood in Itasema's apartment was not Karina's, Detective Blank stops short of saying that the former girlfriend has been cleared of any involvement in Itasema's death. In fact, he says, no one has been officially ruled out. Karina has been uh, positively, or has been directly ruled out as the immediate suspect. As far as to motive of what caused Irasema's death or who could have led to this, I'm keeping that open for all involved. Um, no one's been ruled out as far as that goes. I tried unsuccessfully to reach out to Karina. My research shows she married a man several months after Irasema's murder and now has children. The only criminal record that I could find was that she was arrested in Dallas County in November 2012, 10 months after Irasema's murder for not stopping for a police officer trying to pull her over for speeding. She was charged with evading arrest with a vehicle, a third degree felony. But in the end, she was given two years deferred adjudication probation after she pled guilty to a reduced class A misdemeanor evading charge. A little more than a year later, she was released from her probation early. So after following all these trails, Blank is still no closer to finding Itasema's killer. The DNA profile extracted from the blood drop found on Itasema's nightstand was entered into CODIS, the national DNA database that can compare it to offenders arrested for, charged, or convicted of certain crimes, but no match is made. Now it's hard for me to believe that someone who commits a crime so violent isn't already in CODIS for a previous crime. But Blank points out that if this was a hit man, or I guess I should say hit woman, who came here from Mexico, they might have had a record in Mexico, but their DNA would not have been included in CODIS. Also, if this is truly just a, a crime of passion, let's say that it is a jilted other lover or whatever else, this may have been a one-time event for them. That's not to say that they may not get something down the road, you know, felony DWI, that'll trigger it into CODIS and we get a hit in 10 years. Um, it's just that for whatever reason, this particular suspect doesn't have the background put their DNA into CODIS. So a few years ago, someone in the department got word about this company in Virginia called Parabon that was creating suspect composites based on DNA evidence left behind at crime scenes. Called DNA phenotyping, it's basically a prediction of a suspect's physical appearance that is derived from the DNA. I mean, obviously they can't predict someone's weight or hairstyle or those kind of things but they can predict things like a suspect's ancestry, hair, and eye color. And from that, they create a composite of what the suspect likely looked like. We did our research on first because we were highly skeptical. I mean, it seems like it was, if the DNA was this good and this accurate and everything, why isn't anyone else doing this? And why doesn't DME have the, this test? Why doesn't DPS have this test? Why, how come, you know, this seems too CSI Miami. So after they do all this research, the department decides to give this a try for the first time. 
and they pick Ida Sama's case for a few reasons. One, the brutality of the murder. Two, they had the full DNA profile of a single suspect, not a mixture, not a partial profile, the full profile. And three, they had a large enough DNA sample and even if they used up a percentage of it to have this analysis completed, they'd still have plenty left for future testing should a suspect surface in the case. The service cost $3,600 for the analysis of one sample, Parabon officials tell me. But Blank got approval for the funding, and in April 2016, they got Parabon's snapshot prediction results phenotype report. The analysis shows the suspect was a Latina female with likely black or brown hair, brown or hazel eyes, and light brown or fair skin, and few, if any, freckles. They also sent two composites, showing what the suspect may have looked like at age 25 and with an average weight. In one, the suspect is featured with long hair and the other extremely short hair. You can view these composites and reports on our podcast webpage at www.startelegram.com backslash out of the cold. Did you end up getting any tips? Nothing. Uh, I met with the family, um, showed them the pictures, walked them through the entire, we had a, all the friends came from Dallas. They thought that uh, the picture reminded them vaguely of a lady who they saw in Dallas club, but it was nothing more specific than that. Uh, nothing, nothing came of it. Um, it just kind of dissipated. Now the six years that have passed have done little to ease the pain for Edisema's family. Mohammed said the murder and seeing her sister's body left Theana inconsolable. Small noises in the middle of the night awoke and frightened her. She would cry nonstop. Making things worse, Mohammed said, was a giant framed photograph of Irasema that his wife had hung in the living room of their home. It had been a gift from Irasema's friends. Almost life-size, the photograph shows Irasema smiling and decked out in Western clothes, including a white cowboy hat, the kind of outfit she'd like to wear when she went out Tejano dancing. It's the same outfit that her family would bury her in. I took that picture out because I thought, how are you gonna have this picture over here every morning, every night you go to sleep, it's right there. I took it out and hide it and I put it in the closet. I said, get a small picture. It's okay to have a small picture of her next to you. I mean, not something like this. Do you see that? I mean, to me, if I see her, I see her life right there, standing up. So it's, no, I tell no, I'm sorry. Mohammed said his wife's mother has the same large photo hanging in her home in Mexico. He said he's urged his mother-in-law to take it down and to instead remember her granddaughter in her heart, not through a giant photograph that only seems to torture her. And yet, the photograph remains. I mean, every second you walk in, you see her over there. I mean, I know she's right here. She's always gonna be right here, me. You guys killing yourself like this. For Yessi, who has struggled with a heart condition all her life, she said finding her aunt was the worst thing she's ever lived through. It's something that I don't wish on anyone. I was so sad and totally destroyed. My illness got even worse and I had to go to several specialists, including a psychologist, because of what I went through. I was completely destroyed. She says she spent a lot of time in therapy. I couldn't sleep. I had so many bad memories. I imagined myself in all the blood. I imagined myself in that scene again. The doctors had to give me sleeping pills and I felt nervous all the time. I couldn't do well in school or at work because of the medication I was taking. Diana refused to go to therapy despite her husband's urging. She worries that because of her sister's large circle of friends, her killer may never be caught. And with that thought comes fear. 
and I'm, I'm scared, you know, because still we don't know who did it. But Mohammed is more optimistic. He clings to the promise that he said Detective Blank once made him. It's gonna happen, babe. I can't. I can promise you one thing. I don't know when. We're gonna. We're gonna working. Work on it really hard to find this person who did this. If you have any information about the murder of Edesema Rosa Chavez, please call Arlington Homicide Detective Caleb Blank at 817-459-5735. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to my colleague, Hannah Tamis, for her assistance with translating for this month's episode. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Stephen Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd. 